Micah chapter 7. And I'm reading only verses 18 through 20. Listen, this is God's word. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. My name is Larry. I'll be your pastor or the assistant to the associate regional pastor. I'm glad to be back. It's been a while. Now imagine moving to the Philadelphia area from a foreign country in a pre-GPS world. And imagine wanting to go to the Philadelphia Zoo. So you ask a local for directions and she says, oh, it's easy. Just take the turnpike to the Blue Route, to the Schuylkill, and once you've gone through the Conshohocken Curve, just follow the signs, you can't miss it. Now, most of you are sitting here as locals saying, yeah, that makes sense, that would get me there. But if you're not local, those directions make no sense at all. Sure, there are small keystone-shaped signs that say Penna Turnpike on them. But the real ones, the ones you're supposed to see, the ones you're, uh, that are supposed to guide you actually say Interstate 276 West. And there's no map in the world with the name Blue Route on it. Well, except for a planning map on the wall of a museum somewhere showing a map from 1958 with four potential north-south roads drawn in green, yellow, red, and blue, and the blue one just happened to win. What you're really looking for is Interstate 476 South. And then, of course, even if you were able to spell the word Schuylkill, you would discover it's a river, not a road. The road you really want to take to get to the zoo is Interstate 76 East, of course. And finally, there are no signs to say that you have entered or exited the Conshohocken Curve. All you've noticed is a 90-degree bend that is part road, part parking lot, and part construction project with the sun shining in your eyes. You see, every local, you're laughing because every local one of you knows these terms. You know what we mean when we say take the turnpike to the Blue Route to the Schuylkill through the Conshohocken Curve and follow the signs. But if you're a newcomer, even ones that really want to get to the zoo, you scratch your head. Well, Diana and I are thrilled to be back with you and uh, during our time away, which we have come to refer to as Trinity Appreciation Summer, we visited a whole bunch of different churches and we learned a few things. 
We learned ours is not the only building where the pathway from the parking lot to the pew is a little obscure. And we learned that we're not alone and not always having a regular, smiling, welcoming person greeting us at the door and helping us find our way in or pointing us in the right direction. But we also learned or were reminded that we and every other church we know has its own language and culture. Some of our language is made up of jargon and uh, cliches or verbal shorthand. We have our share of technical terms. There are then also in-house, made-up regionalisms like the names we give to our roads. And I began to think about my own complicity in this. And some of the words and phrases I use around here, some of which we rarely subject to any kind of scrutiny or we use without much examination and sometimes even less explanation. And I began to wonder how we communicate the good news of Jesus Christ to ourselves and to unbelievers in theological terms or liturgical phrases we have a hard time defending or describing if we were pressed to do so. And so that's led me today to begin a new sermon series exploring a phrase we confess this morning and we do often. But I wonder how well we can explain that phrase to ourselves, never mind to someone else who might be interested in the state of their soul. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. What is the forgiveness of sins? What does it mean to be forgiven of our sins? What does God do with our sin when He forgives us? Now, at a very basic level, sin is something of ours that stands between us and God. It needs to be removed, and forgiveness has that removal in view. And I'm beginning a series of sermons then in which I intend to have us look at a variety of biblical images, metaphors, illustrations, word pictures God uses to describe the forgiveness of sins. Answering the question along the way, more specifically, of what God says He does with our sin. And my goal for this series is to have you fully appreciate the diverse, multidimensional, multifaceted ways God describes forgiveness in the Bible. So that you'll be more fully and more completely able to not only understand, but to embrace and to experience the forgiving grace of God in Jesus Christ. Precisely as that forgiveness is described in all of the ways that providentially correspond to the diversity of ways in which our sin is described. Forgiveness that perfectly matches our sin. Or another way the, to put it, if I can go back to an OJ reference, the glove of God's forgiveness always fits over the hand of our sin. And if the glove fits, God must acquit. 
I want you to feel that snug, that perfect fit. And I want you to turn to God through Christ again and again in faith, looking to Him for forgiveness, receiving it, delighting in it. Delighting in the mercy and the grace and the compassion and the goodness of God that lies behind it. Delighting even in the justice of God met in Christ that allows you to have it. Delighting in God's covenant faithfulness to His word, to His basic commitments accomplished in Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So that you would see the glory of God as you reflect on His merciful forgiveness in all of its dimensions as it is a gift given to you. And that you would develop a hunger and a thirst for God as the one who deals with your sin, as the one who draws you and others to himself. And then that you would live a life that flows out of knowing you are forgiven. A life of joy, a life of peace, a life of praise and productivity with a clean and a clear conscience and with the assurance that comes from God by His Spirit to you that you belong to Him. I want you then to understand forgiveness more fully and to embrace it and respond to it with joy. Now, I recognize that a sermon series like this comes with its own set of assumptions, many of which I'll simply touch on this morning. I'll tend to say more about these as I go along. Because to say you believe in the forgiveness of sins is to assume we know something about sin. That we know something about the God who we're going to claim is the one who forgives the sin. Something about ourselves who sin and who are in need of forgiveness and who receive it and something about the acts of repentance and faith that are at the heart of our reception of God's gift of forgiveness. You see, there's a whole world of already, I understand technical terms, and I want to bring you along with them. I don't want to simply say, just take the blue route. You won't get there. But if I can help you understand how repentance and faith lead to the full reception and enjoyment of the forgiveness of God in Christ, then we're going somewhere. We come face to face with God here in our text this morning. We meet him in the opening verse. It's such a great question. Who is a God like you? And if you want extra points, you could know that this is actually Micah's name. His name means who is like you or who is like God or who is like Yahweh. But to get right to the point here, the question assumes the answer, there is no one. There is no other God remotely like you. The self-revealing God of the Bible. Of course, to speak of this God is to bring to mind things like his self-existence. He always is. His self-sufficiency. He doesn't need us or even the creation he's made. His demonstrated power in creation. His creativity, if you will, in creation. Making this world and everything in it out of nothing. 
by the word of his power, all very good. And a God who created us, let's not forget, in his image and sinless. In other words, in no need of forgiveness originally. And he created us so that we'd have a relationship with him, that we would be unique among all the created world. And to speak of God brings to mind his holiness and his justice. Because as he is a creating God, he's a law-giving God. And who gives and makes known to us his commands. Commands by which we know how to approach him. How to worship him. How to live and function in his world. How to relate to each other. Doing what he commands. Refraining from what he prohibits. We're reminded he's a holy and a just God who cannot abide evil. Introduced into the world, as you'll remember, through Adam and Eve. Or in the words of another prophet, Habakkuk, his eyes are too pure to look on evil with approval. He cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So the forgiveness of sins has something to do with this God. And of course, the forgiveness of sins has a great deal to do with our sin. Micah was prophesying in Judah during the fall of Israel, which is where, I don't know if you remember, but I left off uh, before I did my summer-long disappearing act. The northern tribes fell, were dispersed. Micah's preaching during that time period. He's addressing, in some sense, Judah, the tribes that remain, but he's actually speaking to the nations, saying, watch what's going on here. See if you can learn something. Here's what God is doing to his people, bringing about chastisement, judgment even for their sin. As Micah prophesies, he's describing not only the exile, but a restoration, a post-exile world where God's people will have been thoroughly chastised for their sin, for their rebellion, for their false worship, for their lack of trust in Him, for their sense of self-sufficiency, for their failing to hear and heed His word. And the remnant now will be years and miles away from God's great and precious promises to Abraham as they have come to expression during the reigns of David and Solomon with peace and prosperity and big boundaries. And they're going to be humiliated by their enemies so they will be few in number living in a land overrun with weeds, with city walls torn down, temple destroyed, throne empty. They will be in God's judgment brought low on account of their sin. Because God remembers his promises. God remembers his word that he will deal with their sin. And in contemplating God's, God in his holiness with an eye toward forgiveness, one commentator writes of this last section of Micah and says this. The heartfelt appreciation of divine grace that impassions this finale is an emotion that can be experienced only by those who have come to see sin through God's eyes. 
We will understand and embrace and enjoy and live out of forgiveness when we understand the backdrop of our sin against a holy God, a God who has loved us and has called us to be his own. And again, this brings us back to our text because the question of God's matchlessness, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? That question demands a response of recognizing God's unrivaled nature. Our God is unique. He stands out among all the other gods of all the other nations, even though it seems for a time that some of those gods have ascended in superiority over the God of Israel. But he, Yahweh, God of Israel, is matchless, without peer. And this is the point of Micah's passage here. Notice the accent of the question falls not on his divine justice, by which we are measured, by which he weighs our, us and our sin and judges it. Nor does it fall on his divine wrath, by which he, has, uh, by which he punishes our sin as it deserves. Rather, the accent here falls on his compassion and mercy. What kind of a God, who is there like you? Pardoning iniquity. What kind of a God? does that. He pardons iniquities. He passes over transgressions. Two ways to describe sin, iniquities and transgressions. Two ways God responds to it by pardoning it or forgiving it, passing over it. These and other images we'll explore in the next several weeks. But I want you to notice the two additional and especially vivid images in this passage describing what God does with our sin. Both in verse 19. First, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. It's an image of disdain and domination and destruction. Little children might be thinking of the bug they squashed under their shoes. Or you might think of the image of the boot on the neck of a defeated enemy. But if you want a better image, come back to the Garden of Eden with me. And remember, the Lord cursed Satan disguised as a serpent, condemning him to crawl on the ground. And God promised to him and to us the arrival on the scene of a descendant of the woman. One whose heel that serpent would bruise or bite only to have that heel crush his head. That serpent would be trodden underfoot. The Apostle Paul expands this image in Romans 16 with a promise extended to us. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your foot. To walk over something is to nearly disregard it or to demonstrate your superiority over it. God as Micah describes it, will through Jesus and what Jesus does to Satan, the author of sin, will walk all over your sin. He'll tread it underfoot, defeated, disdained, disregarded. The second image Micah gives is of God casting our sins into the depths of the sea. 
And we might imagine here our sins as a kind of boat anchor. God throws it overboard without the chain attached to it, and it sinks to the bottom irretrievably. Not only is the weight of sin lifted from us, but it is swallowed up by the water. And that's a fair picture, and I hope it helps. But there's an even better picture of this coming to us in the story of God's greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament in the Exodus. You'll remember when Pharaoh and his armies pursued God's people to the edge of the Red Sea. And the Lord made a dry path for his people to pass through, and the armies of the Egyptians chased after to capture them. And when God's people were out and the armies were still in, the Lord caused the water to collapse on them. And Moses describes this in his hymn, his victory song. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went into the depths like a stone. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. You might remember the picture of Jesus casting out the demons and letting them take over a herd of pigs who then drive themselves off a cliff and, and end up drowning in the water. Or the picture at the end of the Bible, Revelation 20, of the devil himself being cast into a lake of fire. You see, this is more than just a picture of, a, of throwing an anchor overboard or of God removing our sins from his sight or his memory. It is consigning sin to the place where it belongs, to the pit from which it arose and to the place where it will forever remain. That place of, uh, that's depicted in Scripture is a place of chaos and the source of evil, of fear, of death. He's throwing our sins there. Again, irretrievably. No one is going to be able to send down a submarine or whatever to try to get it. It's gone. Now we must admit that Micah is a bit vague on the details. How will God do this? Or better, he was part of an era of history in which God had yet to reveal just exactly how he would deal with this, how he would tread on our sin or cast our sin into the depths of the sea. And we come to know God pardons or forgives or passes over, if you want another Exodus image, our iniquity. He walks all over our sin. He casts our sin into the depths of the sea. And he does that in and through Jesus Christ most especially in what Jesus does in his perfect obedience to the law of God, to his death on the cross in our place, and in his triumphant resurrection from the grave. Acts that satisfy the justice and the wrath of God due to sin. And that make us say, as I hope you would, who is a God like you? What kind of a God does this? 
Is there any other God who can or would? Who is a God like you, forgiving our sin like that in his son? Taking on sin that's not his, dying for it, defeating Satan, treading on him, casting him and our sin into the bottomless sea. Who is a God like that? Of course, we could talk all day about God's character, about God's kindness, about the variety of ways God deals with our sins. But we can't end without asking this question. How does that forgiveness become ours? How can I be forgiven for my sin? How can I know I am forgiven? And of everything I'm, I know now or will need to know or will come to know about who God is and who I am and what sin is and why it needs to be forgiven, how can I even know this is for me? Among all the other presuppositions that we will need to have and need to explore as we go through this series as we contemplate God, as we contemplate what God does with our sins, as we contemplate receiving forgiveness and rejoicing in it, we will need to be reminded of God's gifts to us by His Spirit of repentance and of faith. Repentance involving seeing our sin as being contrary to God, as defiling us in His perfect, holy, radiant presence as making us legally liable to his judgment and wrath, of alienating us from fellowship with him, robbing us of the joy of a clean conscience before him, and more, more to come. Repentance that involves a sorrow for our sin. That involves a turning away from it, repudiating it and laying hold of the mercy of God to us in Jesus Christ. Trusting in Him, trusting in His finished work on the cross, looking to Him and to no other, for there are no others, to save Jesus. What kind of a Jesus are you? Who is like you? And to trust in him that he has fully satisfied, fully cleansed, fully provides for, has fully trodden our sins under feet, has fully cast our sins into the depths of the sea. That we might know and enjoy and experience that forgiveness. But it involves a turning from and a turning to. The prophet Isaiah describes it this way. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I can say to you today and invite you to come back again, but if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. And we will continue to explore what that means and you will be 
even uh, amazed, I hope, every time we confess the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And that will mean more to you. It'll be a clearer route to joy with God than me saying, take the turnpike to the Blue Route to the Schuylkill. It'll have meaning. It'll get you there. So you can invite your friends, your neighbors to come and you can give them clear and simple instructions from how to get to the parking lot to the pew. And you can welcome them and invite them and say, I know what it means to be forgiven. And I want you to know too. And here's a place where we'll not only learn about it, but we will respond as forgiven people to the God who forgives. The God who in Christ treads our sin underfoot, casts our sin into the depths of the sea, and so much more. More to come. Come back next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for fleshing out, filling out our images, our pictures of what that actually means. Give us joy. Give us peace. Give us clean and clear consciences, hearts undefiled by the cleansing blood of Christ. Give us a sense that our sins have been so far removed from us. They're swirling around on their way to the bottom of a bottomless sea. Thank you, Father, for your word. Allow us to embrace it, enjoy it, live it, respond with praise. Help us to invite others who do not know this forgiveness to come to know Christ and in him the peace that passes understanding. Receive our thanks, hear our prayer. We offer it in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen.